Exodus chapter one. Friends, we're actually getting ready to study one of the most important stories in human history. Outside of the life of Jesus Christ and the Gospels, we're going to be hard-pressed to find another story, another book in the Bible that has more impact in human history than the book of Exodus. It reaches its way through history. It reaches its way through the Christian worldview, through the rest of the Old Testament. But it's not just inside of our churches. It's not just inside of Sunday school and children's church that we you know, learn these stories so it becomes important to us. The book of Exodus has left its imprint on our culture in some really significant ways. We can look even at the slave spirituals of the early South and the songs that they would sing as they learned of the Christian faith. They grabbed very quickly onto the story of Moses leading his people out of Exodus into freedom by the sovereign grace and power of God. And these are the songs that they would write and these are the songs that they would sing and that are still with us, many of them still today. Some of you might know that Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin when they personally commissioned artists to create a seal for the United States of America, the scene that they used for the seal for the nation was Moses leading the people out of Egypt. They saw this brand new nation in terms of the exodus from Egypt into the sovereign plan of God and the promised land. In fact, Ben Franklin, around that original seal, the original uh, motto that he wanted for our nation is resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. He pulled that from the book of Exodus. These things are deep in our system. They're deep in the way that we see the world. And as we're going to find out, um, it's incredibly important to the way scripture talks about you and me and our relationship with God and and sin and salvation and on and on. This is such a big book. How do we go about making sense of the book of Exodus? Instead of leaning on just one theme or one lesson, what we are given in this book is this sweeping story of the building of a nation. Not just any nation, but people who have become now, especially the people of God, rescue from bondage and leading them into the promised land. Now, I have to admit, when I first had this feeling that I was going to begin to uh, preach the book of Exodus, we were coming up to the end of the Gospel of John, and I'm working through what am I going to do next and the book of Exodus was the only thing that was making sense to me, I resisted. I just kept on saying, eh, there's gotta be, you know, can I do Philippians again? Is there something else that maybe I can do? But I just kept on coming back to the book of Exodus because it is a daunting book. There's so much going on in this book for you and me. It's not just the stories themselves in this book, but we're gonna have to deal with the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai, the creation of the people of God. It's a great big thing. So how are we going to handle the book of Exodus? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to pay very careful attention to chapters 1 through 20. That's the first half of the book. That gets us to Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. As you read through the book of Exodus, you will discover that as chapter 20 ends and the rest of the book begins, chapters 20, the second half of 20 through the end of the book, chapter 40, Uh, A lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of it is devoted to the tabernacle, how you build the tabernacle, how the priests are going to be structured, some of the laws, but there are still a lot of things in that last half of the book for us to pay attention to. So we're going to pay very careful attention to those first 20 chapters, and then we're still going to pay attention to everything that is really critical, important, and go through the rest of the book as well. And I've got to tell you, I'm already really excited for the last sermon of the book of Exodus, the last few verses. So if you're here at the end of March, you might be here. For, I'm, it's going to take a little bit longer than three months to get through Exodus, but I am excited for that. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to read through the first seven books, uh, verses of Exodus chapter 1. It's significant but it acts as the setup. It acts a little bit like an introduction to the book. 
We're going to go through these seven verses, but we're also going to spend some time this morning making sense of what happens here and where the book of Exodus fits inside of Scripture. So Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, friends, this is the word of the Lord. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All these descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The book of Exodus begins in the middle of the story. It begins with a sense of backstory. A lot has already happened. Uh, who is this Jacob and the children of Israel and these individuals that we listed and Joseph? He's already in Egypt, but then he dies, and it feels like that's significant to us. Exodus begins in the middle of the story. It's actually a very useful literary device. If you read a lot of novels, by the time you read the first couple of pages, you realize that you're in the middle of the story. There's a backstory to these characters that's going to be explained as the novel moves forward. The book of Exodus, as a piece of literature, does very much the same kind of thing. Now, the first five books of the Bible, okay, we're in book number two. But Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are this unit, the Torah. We're going to talk about that in just a moment, what these first five books do. But we get in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then we get Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers all begin with the Hebrew word, and. Now, your English translations don't do that because it's a little bit strange in English, but all three of these books literally pick up where the other book left off. They want you to know we're all part of this one big story that begins with God's creation of the heavens of the earth and then God's people ending up inside of the promised land before we make our way into the book of Joshua. But here's what we read in those first seven verses. Jacob, the patriarch of the 12 tribes of Israel. Many of you may recall that in the book of Genesis, when he wrestles with God, God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. The one who wrestles with God is what the name Israel means. But Jacob and his sons and their families have come into Egypt. We read that in those first couple of verses. And it says that there's 70 of them. There's just about enough of them to fill a tour bus. And that's how they come into Egypt, right? Now, they come as honored guests. They're not slaves yet. They come as honored guests. Because one of the brothers, Joseph, has made his way to second in command in Egypt. And they have come to uh, Egypt to survive a famine. And Joseph brings his family into Egypt so that they can continue to live and thrive and be fed. And Joseph convinces Pharaoh to give his family the best land in all of Egypt. And they literally began to thrive. You read through the book of Genesis and what it's called is the land of Goshen. I still remember in one of my Sunday school classes when I learned that the Israelites lived in the land of Goshen, what I heard was they lived in the Atlantic Ocean. It made no sense to me, but it's the land of Goshen. But Joseph, one of those brothers, has risen to the top of Egypt's government, and he has saved the nation of Egypt, surrounding tribes and nations, including his own family. So that's significant. He literally saves his family because of his administrative ability and the sovereign plan of God. So then it's important, as we read in these few verses like we did, that Joseph dies. And that entire generation of brothers and sisters and family and fathers and mothers, they all died as well. So the reason the family in Egypt survived a family, survived famine, is now dead. Something else is important here as well. Israel's connection, the family of Israel, their connection 
to Pharaoh in Egypt, their connection to power in Egypt is now dead. So now where there was a direct connection, now there's distance. What's going to happen with that? Is anything going to change because of that? But the family here not only survives, they continue to do okay, and there's about 273 of them now. What the text tells us is that they thrive, and they multiply and multiply and multiply. So a large family turns into a nation of people. So that's in a nutshell what we read in those first seven verses. To understand a little bit more about what's going on, let's understand where the book of Exodus fits inside of the Bible. Those first five books of the Old Testament, the the Hebrew terminology, the, the Hebrew description of those five books is the Torah. We sometimes call them the five books of Moses. Because of one of the early Greek translations of the Old Testament, you will also see the Greek word Pentateuch to describe those first five books. So however you see those words used, it describes those first five books. So we've already described that the book of Exodus picked up where the book of Genesis left off. Creation, fall, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the story of Joseph, and now Exodus picks up right where that leaves off. What Leviticus does is that it continues now with the story of Abraham and God, and, or excuse me, Moses and God and his people, but now Leviticus focuses on the laws and the feasts and the festivals. So as you read Leviticus, in fact, if you read the last couple of chapters of Exodus and you just keep reading as if you're not moving from one book to another, you're going to feel like I'm still reading the same book. I'm still reading the same story. But now Leviticus focuses on those laws, and some of them are very, very specific. Then the book of Numbers takes account of the people of Israel as they're wandering through the wilderness. So that account of the people is literal in those first few chapters. It's, and this is name after name after name after name after name after name after name. But if you push through those first few chapters, you get to all the stories. And these are the stories of the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness um, until they make their way to the edge of the promised land. So those four books are kind of telling that one story. The book of Deuteronomy is slightly different. It's still part of the five, but it's slightly different. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses' final sermon to his people. So his people are on the east side of the Jordan River. They are about to cross the Jordan River into the promised land. Moses is not allowed into the promised land, but before they go, he gives this final sermon. The book of Deuteronomy, the word means a second telling of the law. So Moses pulls it all together. Moses lays the responsibility of the covenant at the feet of God's people. He reminds them that God's going to remain faithful to his covenant. So the book of Deuteronomy, in a sense, kind of pulls it all together, wraps it up, and Moses dies at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. So as a piece of literature, we know where the book of Exodus sits inside of the first five books of the Bible. The book itself, though, is important historically. The rest of Scripture does not take the book of Exodus as mythology. It takes the book of Exodus as something that really actually happened to these people. So it's a critical piece of historical information in the background of the people of God. It's enormously important to them. God's people really are in bondage. God really does free them. The plagues of Egypt really do happen. They really do cross over a dry seabed on the Red Sea. Mount Sinai actually happens. They receive the Ten Commandments from God. So it's critical to the identity of God's people, both in the Old Testament and to the church still today, that what happens in the book of Exodus is history, and it's God revealing himself through these events to Moses, to Israel, to Pharaoh, and then to us as well. The book of Exodus is full of some of the best stories in the Old Testament. If you haven't read through Exodus in a little while, I I encourage you to start chewing through this book and you might uh, might remind yourself, I forgot this story was there. I, I didn't remember that this had happened inside of the book of Exodus. We get Pharaoh's murderous anger in chapter one, the saving of Moses and how that happens. 
the burning bush and the name of God. We actually get the name of God for the first time in the book of Exodus, and when we say we get the name of God, we kind of get the name of God. What does that mean? How does God reveal himself through the burning bush? The manna that falls in the wilderness that feeds the people of God. Do you know what the word manna means? It translates as, what is it? (laughs) They don't know, so they call it, I don't know, but they eat it for years. The Ten Commandments in Mount Sinai the golden calf, the building of the tabernacle, the, the description of the tabernacle, and on and on it goes. So the book is full of these incredible stories that will continue to reveal to us who God is, what he's like, how God wants us to understand him, how God wants us to understand relationship with him as well. But then there are these themes in the book of Exodus that become critical to the rest of Scripture that become critical to our understanding of who God is. And the rest of the book is going to tease a lot of these out. And I'm excited to get to a lot of these themes and so much more inside of this book. But because it's just you and me, I hope you don't mind if I take a couple of minutes and talk through some of these themes. It might sort of whet your appetite for the rest of this book. And if you sit down and begin reading through it, maybe you'll see some of these themes and it'll help us make sense of what's happening in the book of Exodus. And the first thought is this, that God is faithful to his covenant. God is faithful to his covenant. When Moses finally comes into contact with God early on in the book of Exodus, one of the things that God tells Moses is, I have heard the cries of my people He's going to tell Moses, and I will, by a strong arm, lead them into freedom. I will lead them into the promised land. God is faithful to his covenant. Even when we are unfaithful to that, even if we ignore, even if we walk away, God will always do everything he has promised to do. So this notion of covenant, we have to understand at least a couple of basic concepts. Covenant biblically is not just like a friendship, two people who enjoy each other's company for several years in their life and they're good friends. It's not just that. It's not a legally binding contract in the sense that it's just between two parties who don't know each other but they're bound to do a couple of things for one another. A covenant is more like a biblical understanding of marriage. People who have covenanted to be with one another, to be faithful, to tend to one another, to love one another, right, to take care of, it's this binding relationship that God creates with his people. And no matter what his people do, no matter what happens to his people, God will always fulfill his part of the covenant. You go through the book of Genesis, and God is a covenant-making God. God establishes a covenant with Adam and Eve. God establishes a covenant with Noah after the flood. And we're going to read a couple of pieces of the covenant that God establishes with Abraham, and it's that covenant with Abraham that turns the book of Exodus into the drama that it is. God is going to fulfill what he promised he would do. So God is faithful to his covenant. God alone is God. There is no other God like him. There is no other God beside him. David and Isaiah and other parts of the Old Testament, years and years and generations after the Exodus, as they learn more and more about God and who he is, they're going to say things like, who is like our God? And this is part of what God is revealing to Moses, to Israel, and to Pharaoh is the answer to that question. There is nobody like your God. In fact, God is going to set up and he is going to win a battle of the gods in the book of Exodus. That's what the plagues are. It's part of what the plagues are. He sets it up and he wins. The plagues are a fascinating thing, the way that they work and what they reveal about God and who he is and what he's teaching us about himself. 
God is also teaching us in the book of Exodus that he is the only God who is greater than national borders. You see, this is part of the mindset of the ancient person that their gods were connected to their culture, their nation, their ethnicity. They took care of them. So now enters God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, walks into Egypt and says, you know what? I'm greater than all of your gods. To the most powerful empire on earth at the time, God says, I am greater than that. God alone is God. I'm looking forward to going through the plagues and what those mean. Here's something else that gets developed in the book of Exodus, becomes critically important for you and me right now. The identity of God's people is based on the character and the power of God. Because our God is like this, now we, as the people of God, are expected to become more and more like him. Less and less like the Egyptians. We're not supposed to be anything like the Canaanites who are in the promised land, but because we belong to this God, we're supposed to become like him. So in the book of Exodus, God is revealing, this is the 10 commandments. This is who I am, this is what I am like, this is what I expect. And it comes from his very character and nature. And the rest of the law that gets teased out is so much about this is who I am, so this is now who I expect my people to be. Don't be like the Egyptians. Don't be like the world around you. You are to bear witness to who your God is based on your lifestyle. It's an incredible and powerful thing. Another theme, God is going to use his people to reveal himself to the world. God will, that's the vehicle that God will use. Now, God can be seen uh, in creation. David talks about this. The, uh, some of the others in the Old Testament, New Testament, see that God is known in creation. And yes, that is true. But when it comes to God specifically revealing himself, he's going to use his people to reveal himself to everyone else. So God is going to tell Moses who he is. He's actually going to give Moses his name. He's going to reveal himself to Moses, and he expects Moses to do that same thing to Pharaoh and to Egypt. So he's going to begin to unfold the power and the character of God to Pharaoh and to Egypt, and Moses and his brother Aaron are going to unfold the character and nature of God to the people of Israel. So God's going to use Moses to reveal himself to Egypt and to Israel. And then we get partway through the book of Exodus. And uh, as we approach Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 and Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments, as we're literally at the foot of Mount Sinai, God's going to say, now you are a nation of priests to me. So now what God intends is for his people to now become the vehicle of revelation to the rest of the world. He intends his nation to reveal himself to the rest of the world. Then we move our way into the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. You see, this theme continues. He intends the people of God, you and me, to bear witness to him to the rest of the world. This is critical stuff, and we can see that these themes, these ideas, make their way through Scripture, and they land in our lap. So God's going to use his people to reveal himself to the world. Here's one you probably would not have seen coming. We're going to talk about tyranny versus freedom. Tyranny and freedom. Pharaoh's the tyrant. God is going to release his people. He's going to free them from slavery. He's going to give them their own land, and they're going to erect themselves as a nation with God as their head. So what does it mean for him to be a tyrant? What does it mean for God to release his people from tyranny? Here's a couple of interesting thoughts. We need to keep this in mind. Freedom is better than tyranny. Did you know that? Freedom is better than tyranny even if it forces you into the desert. It's better for the people of God to be free from the tyranny in Egypt and be in the wilderness than it is for them to be slaves in Egypt. It's incredible stuff. <clears throat> the first half a dozen or so heroes in the book of Exodus are all female. God is, yeah, amen. <laughs> 
God is starting to do something unique. Pharaoh the tyrant pushes, pushes, pushes. He doubles down, then he doubles down again. And God keeps using, until Moses finally shows up and does what God wants him to do, God keeps using these women to subvert the power of the tyrant. And this is again part of what the uh, plagues do, is it becomes this face-to-face, so to speak, you understand how I say this, a face-to-face battle between Pharaoh the tyrant and the God of all creation. And Pharaoh the tyrant is going to beat himself against that brick wall so many times that eventually it's going to destroy his family. He's going to break himself against the reality of God, and God wins. Tyrants have a unique kind of power, and we're going to see a bizarre, unique kind of power that Pharaoh the tyrant has even in the first chapter of of Exodus. The only word that can accurately describe the kind of power that tyrants have is satanic. We're going to watch that happen. We're going to watch that happen. I have also learned, the more I've spent time with some of this stuff, that the Western notion and just kind of our Western political, cultural tradition takes its sense of freedom and liberty primarily from the book of Exodus. So what does that mean? How do we tease that out? Well, it's going to be some pretty powerful stuff. Another theme And some of you are thinking, how many themes are in the book of Exodus? This is important stuff. Waiting for God. Waiting for God. God told Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. And it's generation after generation after generation. And then it's Exodus. It's slavery. It's release. It's wandering through the wilderness. And then they make their way into the promised land. It's waiting for God to act. And it's a powerful theme inside of this book. What does it mean for that to happen? And what is God doing when we're waiting for him to act? Then a final thought in these themes of the book of Exodus. God is our creator and our moral law giver. When we think of God as our creator, we think naturally of the book of Genesis those first couple of chapters, creation, of the heavens and the earth, and how that all unfolds, and Adam and Eve are placed in the garden and told to take stewardship of it and to be fruitful and multiply. But the book of Exodus is going to call on that theme over and over and over to remind us that God is not part of creation. God is not the God of the sun. He's not the God of the sea. He's not the God in the river. He is the God over all of creation. And then God is our moral lawgiver. And that comes most clearly to us through the Ten Commandments. And that we are now beholden to God as moral people. As people behave in this world with one another. God, not Egypt, is our moral lawgiver. So these are some of the important things that happen inside of this book. These are some of the things that have been rolling around in my heart and mind as I've started working through this book as well. And hopefully it's going to help us make sense of things as it moves forward. But I want to return now to those first seven verses in the book of Exodus. And if we say that if Exodus begins in the middle of the story, what story have we been reading? What brings us to this point in these first seven verses? So we have to go back now to uh, early on in the book of Genesis when God promised Abraham that he would give Abraham's family this promised land. He called Abraham out from this place where he lived to begin to sojourn through the desert and eventually makes his way to what we would now call the promised land. And while he's there, God says, I'm going to give you and your descendants this land. As we open up the book of Exodus, there's a family, it's a large family, but it's not a nation yet. And they're all children of Abraham, but they're in Exodus. They're not in the promised land. So I want us to pick up some of that story and understand what God is doing. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This is the very beginning of the story of Abraham. And in fact, his name is still Abram. God will later on give him the name Abraham. So Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 say this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, 
and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This great, big, sweeping covenant promise that God gives this one man who's somewhere in the middle of the desert, says, I need you to leave all of that, and you're just going to go. And when you get there, I'll tell you. There's a whole sermon there all by itself. <laughs> go, do what I'm asking you to do, and when you get there, I'll tell you, but obey me. And Abraham does. And as Abraham's story unfolds, he and Sarah get older and older, and they haven't had any children. But Abraham's been given this promise. Your family's gonna be gargantuan, and it's gonna bless everybody on earth, and your family's gonna be this kind of tipping point for every other culture on earth. And Abraham's thinking, I don't have any kids and we're getting older. So we get to Genesis chapter 15. God comes back to Abraham and they redo this because Abraham is concerned. So in Genesis 15, verses three through six, and Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. So Abram tells God, all right, I, I don't have biological children, but I have this man who's in my household. I'm just gonna make him my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then God said to Abram, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. In this chapter, again, God says that anyone who blesses Abraham's children will be blessed, and anyone who curses Abram's children will be cursed. This gets teased out in the book of Exodus. It's maybe the first example of that, um, you, you know, uh, that, that promise being fulfilled. God again promises the land to Abraham. So we continue through the book of Genesis, and Abraham gives birth to Isaac, and Isaac gives birth to Jacob, and Jacob gives birth to his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And inside of that story, we've got this young guy by the name of Joseph, one of the youngest of the sons. And God has his hand on him, and he says some things and make his older brothers jealous. And so as older brothers are wont to do, they decide to sell their younger brother into slavery. So they take him out one day, they throw him in a pit. A bunch of Midianite slave traders come by, and so they just sell their brother to the Midianites, and they concoct this story, and when they go back to dad, Jacob, and Jacob believes that his son is dead, and the brothers have lost track of Joseph, and they're finally rid of this guy. And you can read that story, at least part of it, in Genesis chapter 37. But then the story begins to focus on what happens to Joseph. And Joseph has this incredible character. Joseph is this strong individual, and he has a lot of wisdom. And God is very good to Joseph. God is very, um, shows his providential and powerful hand with Joseph. And so everything that Joseph goes through, he eventually goes from, the imagery is great, he literally goes from a pit into slavery, <laughs> into prison, falsely accused of sexual harassment, and then makes his way to second in position to the most powerful man on earth. See, God is doing something that Jacob and his brothers don't see. They don't know what's coming. Joseph doesn't even know what's coming until Pharaoh has his dreams. But God is doing something that they don't even know, and they're going to be saved by what God is doing that they don't see. This is part of the story of Joseph. So the famine hits, and Jacob sends his son down, sons down to Egypt, and um, it's, it's, it's this crazy story, and they're frightened, and they're worried. But what Joseph does is he saves his family, he saves Egypt. Joseph learns that his family has come, and he arranges this meeting with them. And the meeting between Joseph and his brothers is obviously just a little bit touchy, because <laughs> the guys who put you into slavery have now become your vassals. So what's Joseph going to do? So when Joseph starts to talk to his brothers, he knows something that they don't know. 
That's how he talks to them. And we need to hear what Joseph says to his brothers, again, to help us get into the book of Exodus. Genesis chapter 45, verses 4 through 8. This is part of Joseph revealing himself to his brothers. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. That's the Abrahamic covenant. That's God saying, I will do everything I have said I will do. You're a small family. You have no food. You have to go to Egypt, but look what I've done. You intended this for evil. God's intended it for good. And the way Joseph sees his life is God did this. God sent me here. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. What is God doing when we don't see what he is doing? What is he doing? And it's even at this time in the book of Genesis, we've got the brothers, the sons of Jacob. They learn all this. They're making sense of this, and there's all this drama in that story. But then God even talks to Jacob, the older father now, who has learned that Joseph is alive. In Genesis 46, verses 3 through 4, so this is again before the book of Exodus. God knows what he is doing. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father, the God of Isaac. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again and Joseph, the son that you thought you had lost, he will be with you when you die. He will close your eyes. So that's where we are when we read Exodus chapters 1 through 7. This is the relationship between Joseph and Egypt and his brothers and their salvation, so to speak, and their place in the land and their connection to Pharaoh and Egypt and on and on and on in God's fulfilling, or at least he's keeping alive his covenant to Abraham to create this nation. So Exodus begins with the phrase, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. So the text opens right up where Genesis closes. Joseph is alive in Egypt now with this family. But then two things happen. In those seven verses that we read, Joseph dies and the children of Israel multiply. This is important for us. We will discover that the passing of that generation is going to lead to real consequences. The world will change for Israel because of the passing of a generation. Now think about this, and we're going to hit this at different times throughout this book. The movement from one generation to the next is filled with opportunity and potential disaster. Movement from one generation to the next is a significant step. And there's opportunity there. There's, there's, the, there's a chance for God to raise new leaders. It's also wrought with potential disaster. That's actually the first thing or the next thing that's going to happen in the book of Exodus. This is actually the first note of tension in the book. The generation that saved Egypt and all of the surrounding nations and tribes, that generation is dead and gone. The generation that knew what it was like to be led by Joseph, they knew what it was like to be taken care of by Joseph, is now gone. And new generations are beginning to arise. So without Joseph and without that generation, what will happen to the children of God? Will things change in the nation 
of Egypt. So the tension begins quickly in the book of Exodus for us. But we need to keep this in mind because this becomes incredibly important to Moses. In fact, it's in his last sermon to his people. Faith does not pass from one generation to the next by magic. It doesn't happen just because your kids grow up in your home or just because they come to church with you from time to time. It takes intention and deliberation and it even takes time. Each generation needs to see the faithfulness of the one before it. And every generation needs to have its own experience and relationship with God. We're going to watch a tyrant try to emasculate a nation. And I use that word on purpose. Friends, one of the easiest ways to destroy the young and to corrode culture is to separate children from their parents. It's one of the most surefire ways of destroying a culture is to separate children from their parents, to create a vacuum of history and gratitude. And we're going to have to talk about this next week. One of the most surefire ways to destroy a culture is to create a vacuum of history and gratitude. Gratitude, that's interesting. That's one of the solutions, actually, to the problem that occurs in verse 8. This is so important that this is part of what Moses tells his people just before he dies. Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you've read through that book or you know a little bit about the book of Deuteronomy, this is part of the passage that you probably know the best. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7, Moses says this. Now, this is after a generation has died in the wilderness and a new generation has risen to the surface. So he's talking about this cycle. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Who else said that? And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Teach this to your kids. Raise the next generation to know the Lord, their God. It doesn't happen by magic or by accident. It happens because the people of God are intentional about this. So Joseph and all of that generation die. It says in Exodus chapter 1. And then verse 7. Verse 7 is a curious little verse. If you wrote verse 7 on your paper to your English teacher, it would come back with red marks all over it. Repetitive, 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 repetitive. Now listen to verse 7 again. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so the land was filled with them. It's a crazy little verse. The language of multiplying in one verse is repeated five times. One of the terms that's used to describe how many Israelites there are in Egypt is the same term that's used later on to describe a swarm of flies. That's how, they're just everywhere. <laughs> that's how much they have multiplied. What has started small, they've all fit into that tour bus, has become large. The people of God flourished in, well, in several generations while in Egypt. And the same thing's going to happen when they become slaves as well. But what happens here is more than just what happens naturally. It is divine. And it is one of our first glimpses into what God is doing. Being fruitful and multiplying, again, it reminds us of that promise to Abraham. So it pushes us back in the story. Oh, this is the covenant with Abraham. God's going to do exactly what he promised to do. But then the language of Exodus pushes us even further back and reminds us, reminds us of creation. It reminds us of what God told Adam and Eve to do. One of the verbs in verse 7, even in English, is they were fruitful. That same verb is used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Exodus is like a new creation 
the nation of Israel through which God will bless the nations and bring his Messiah. Right, so this is massive stuff that's happening in the book of Exodus. So the people of Israel will fill the land and they will prosper. And all of this is a reminder of God's promises and of his faithfulness to his people. And I want to read one more verse and pull it into this story, and this is where we're going to start next time. But then something significant happens. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, just simply says this. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That moment is a really big deal. That's how the book of Exodus becomes what we know of. The people of Israel in slavery, in bondage, oppressed by the tyrant. So God now is going to reveal his power to release them and take them toward the promised land. So Israel is not right now in the promised land. They've now become slaves in Egypt. They were once a favored people even in the land of Egypt. Now they're just the object of tyranny from Pharaoh. Now God has made some specific promises some very specific promises. That is the drama that leads us through the rest of this book. Who is this God? What is he like? Well, how powerful is this God? What does he expect of his people? What is he doing? A couple of thoughts to finish this this morning. Some of you are thinking, finally. The first thought is this. God remembers his people. God remembers his people. Pastor Brooks read from uh, the song that, that they sing, that Moses leads, that they sing later on on the other side of the Red Sea. God has delivered us. God has delivered us. The first time that God talks to Moses God says, I've heard the cries of my people. I have seen their oppression. And now I'm going to reveal my power. And with a strong arm, I'm going to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Members, his people. It is a mistake. It's a mistake that I understand because we make it in our ignorance. Make it in seasons of life when we don't know what else to do. The way that we prayed about it this morning, when's the last time you cried out to God? And if you cry out to God on a regular basis, it's easy for us to begin to believe he doesn't hear, he doesn't pay attention. But one of the most incredibly absurd things we learn in this book is that the God of all creation hears every cry. He hears every cry. He remembers his people. So it's a mistake to believe that God is not working when I do not see him working. It's just a simple fact of God being God. He works on his own timeline. We can't always make sense of it. We do not always like it. But he is always working on behalf of his covenant, his promises. He's always working on behalf of his people. We go back to Genesis 15 and that conversation God has with Abraham. God even told Abraham long before the book of Exodus, your people are going to be enslaved and they're going to suffer in land that's not their own for 400 years. Well, we've come up against the edge of those 400 years. And now what's been happening under the surface starts to come to the top and we see the gears turning and we see things beginning to make sense to us. As God calls Moses and begins to reveal himself. God remembers his people. Friends, let that be encouragement to you if you need it. God has never taken his eye off of you. And he never will. And then this last thought. God is growing his people and he is raising the next generation of leaders. A really good word for the people who do the right things in the book of Exodus is a word that we kind of flippantly throw around because of the movies that we watch right now. But these are heroes of the faith. All that they've encountered, all that they have to overcome, being called by God to do the things that they're supposed to do, the things they're supposed to say, 
people they're supposed to confront, the forces of this world they're supposed to stand before. It requires that kind of heroic faith in the God who called them to do it. God is always raising up that next generation of leaders. God is not surprised by what has now overcome us, this last cultural wave that seems to have turned us upside down. It has not surprised God. He has already given birth to his next generation of heroes of the faith. And he's always growing his people. He is always building his church. So these radical changes in culture from favored status to slavery, from favored status to canceled, They don't take God off guard. One of the questions I want to wrestle with as we go through this book is this question. What happens to the people of God when the culture around them changes enough that their faith goes from favored status to disfavored status? The people of God are in Egypt as favored people. That's Joseph's family. But then a pharaoh arises who doesn't know Joseph. And the tyranny and the oppression begin. So what do the people of God do while they are in that culture and their status has completely changed? I want to answer that question as we go through this book. God is working to take care of his people. He hears their cries. He is setting the stage for their liberation. And God is raising these leaders. He's even raising them in adversity. Before Moses can become the Moses that we know, he makes some mistakes. He spends decades in the Midian wilderness as a shepherd. And then he sees God, and then he's back into the land of Egypt. God raises leaders often through adversity, especially through adversity. Friends, the world will not see the truth and the power of God in Christians and churches who capitulate. The church will not see it. The world will not see it. Pharaoh would not have seen the power of God if Moses said it really isn't that big a deal. If he had capitulated, he grew up in Pharaoh's household. He knew what it was to be an Egyptian. He decided to be a son of God. And that's how Egypt sees, that's how the rest of the world sees who God is. They don't see it, we don't see it, if Christians and churches just capitulate. It's gonna be through men and women like Moses and those around him who endure and do what God called them to do. The people of God will see the power of God and the world around us will begin to see the power of God. Let's pray. 